This is the Sustain What broadcast. And I'm pleased to reconnect with Sabine Paul, who is a professor of urban and environmental psychology now at the University of Vienna. And in a very hot summer there, uh, we've had our extreme heat episodes here as well. And we're going to talk about heat a little bit in terms of uh, infrared visualizations of heat loss and, and other aspects of using uh, visual information to see if we can nudge uh, how we think and act uh, related to climate risk and uh, energy choices. I first got to know your work uh, at the 2015 conference in July in Paris, ahead of the Paris Agreement talks. It was a science, a conference on science informing climate policy, and I was very excited to see the work you were involved with. If you could just describe it briefly, uh, we can get into the details. So what I'm interested in as a psychologist is this problem that people can't see or feel energy loss. We know energy loss and energy generation makes a huge contribution to climate change. So really finding ways of communicating this, making it visible, making it tangible seems to be a hugely important endeavor. And what we did at the time is we had an interdisciplinary project called EVIS, so for energy visualization. And we um, went to householders and gave them different sorts of information. So we worked with building engineers who um, took thermal images of houses, which shows the heat loss. So this is the winter season, very different from now. And the thermal images show heat loss. So in the heating season, um, you can see heat escaping as bright colors. So it's a way of visualizing the normally mm. not uh, seeable energy. And we went with this to the householders. We compared this with a simple energy audit and with a control condition where they didn't get anything. And we found that those people who saw heat being lost from their home later on followed it up and took measures to improve insulation. So they added insulation to the windows, they added insulation to the doors, and it seemed to have a direct impact on behavior, which we even verified by looking at their household bills a year later. Mm. So it's not just a self-report issue, it seems to actually have a, have a real effect. Mm. I have to say it was a small study, um, right. not even 100 people, but nevertheless, um, I think pretty good evidence that this has something to pursue further. And I had seen, um, there had been some work previously on, in the United States, in some places, on how you design an electricity bill, where if you have a comparison with your neighbor's usage, that seems more apt to catch someone's attention. There's an effect there. Um, is that something you would want to build out here? One of the big questions in all of this work is, is scalability. Huh? As you said, even in terms of just doing research, you know, doing an initial 100 subject study, how do we ramp this up? So what's happened since then? So since then, we did a few further studies that were trying to get to the crux of, you know, how tailored do we have to be? Because the trouble is, when we go to households and we have the thermographers, there's a, a reasonable cost. They have to do it with their expertise. And of course, going to individual houses, even arranging dates, appointments with these houses is quite complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and we were trying to play around with this idea, does it actually have to be your own home? Or is it enough if it's a similar home? Or is it something in the neighborhood, perhaps? 
And we had reasonable effects with this. We did another study where we compared sort of standard pictures of houses that just showed the most common problems. So heat loss through the windows, heat loss through the roof, the things we see in a lot of houses. Um, and that went, that worked quite well in terms of psychological outcomes. So people remembered it, they said they shared it with neighbors and so on, all those processes that we're really interested in, um, in psychology. We didn't have a behavioral outcome there. So we don't quite know whether it e equally translates, but we found that it's fine to show people standardized images as well. It still worked better when it was tailored, when it was your own home. Um, but I don't think that's a surprise. So the question really is how tailored does it have to be? Mm. And how much resource do we have to provide this really personalized, you know, this is my house. Oh my God, we, we're bleeding heat into the street. Or right. is it enough sort of to do it slightly lower level? Yeah, here's some other images from one of the, this is basically, just so people understand yeah. the kinds of images we're talking about. And, and we, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say, and these are actually images that are also showing this from the inside. Uh, so that's an interesting question in itself. Oh, is right. it about you being inside and seeing cold air coming in, or is it the outside view and you're seeing your house bleeding heat into the street? Um, another thing to follow up further. This Generally, this area seems to be still a frontier, unless I'm missing something. I was in National <laughs> Geographic society a few years ago and they were starting to do an rfp a request for research and providing grants for researchers researchers on to test how imagery affects conservation uh, attitudes and when you think about it you know national geographic since well before i was a kid you know for 100 plus years was engaging us with wildlife through imagery but for example, is an image of a slaughtered elephant more effective than an image of a happy elephant in terms of saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice to save, have more happy elephants in the world? Or is it a combination? And International Geographic, I was a little frustrated when I was there. They had, they had 130 million Instagram followers now, but I didn't see much evidence they were using that as a laboratory, you know, A-B tests or, is this whole arena of environmental information, visual information, let's say, and response still kind of new terrain? It feels like it should have been, there should have been more engagement earlier on. I think a lot has happened and there is a lot more research on positive and negative images on positive and negative scenarios of the future. And I don't know. I'm sure you've come across some of the research that says if you just work at the fear level, you know, you scare people witness, witless, you you don't get much engagement because people can switch off. They, they can say, I don't want to think about this. It. It's too scary. And it's important to not overdo it too much and link it to solutions or things you can do. Uh, that's, I think, the strongest message so far. I am wondering if this is changing because I mean the sort of day-to-day -day diet we get in the news now is sometimes really really scary and I think people are becoming more accepting of really bad things happening and they're willing to engage with it more so I'm not sure that's a static finding I wonder if especially the younger generation are just more willing to to think about it and do something but the yeah, message, yeah. 
Although even there, you, you know, I, one of my uh, depressing moments as a journalist covering climate change for 33 years now um, came in the mid 2000s, like 2006, when I started interviewing scientists like you for the first time, uh, social behavioral scientists, and learned about this whole body of work that essentially challenged the the theory of change that journalists have, which is that providing people with information uh, on risk uh, changes the course of things. You know, why do what I do if it's not going to be meaningful? And um, one of the phenomena among many that I learned about was uh, shifting baselines of perception. In other words, each generation grows up with a new sense of normalcy. And the heat that you and I, I'm, I'm older than you are, and uh, the, the climate seems to have changed even more, more profoundly for me, having lived through two, two climate almost. Um, and, but yet my son and my two sons, you know, have grown up in a world of where it's normal for California to be on fire. <laughs> and that, that seems like yet another challenge. Um, and that's just one of many, you know, the list, the status quo bias. <laughs> so, um, but it seems like you're still energized in terms of possibilities here more than the downside. I think there's a lot happening. I mean, the research has exploded and there's a lot of really good work from all angles. There's some stuff on the basic underlying processes, which says, you know, visuals engage our emotions, they engage our cognition, so we remember them more. And actually, if it's a really scary visual, we're more likely to remember it. So we have to weigh up the, you know, do I see it just briefly, but it keeps coming back to me for weeks and weeks and thereby has its effect or is it too scary and I just switch off the TV or I go to a different social media site. I'm not sure we really know the answer at the moment. There are other processes, for example, talking about climate change, talking about environmental problems is so much more mainstream, I think, than it ever was. Maybe in the 80s there were discussions going on and people were used to it but I think these days it's I don't know I, I see lots of things that make me fairly optimistic that actually it's been taken serious now and many many people are trying to find a solution and of course I can't not mention <laughs> Greta Thunberg who's really brought things to the fore and is engaging in a very different way than ever before has energized a whole generation so Absolutely. I don't really know what the answer is, but I think there's lots going on, and that's a good thing. Uh, I do too. The, the ferment, I think, uh, is is vital. Anyway, so, what do you think about social media and or uh, that kind of um, that urge we all have to share information with our neighbors and our friends? Uh, there, there has been some work in Canada. I think there's this my heat um, mapping effort. I think you had been involved in, to some extent in assessing how that can work. It's sort of like Google map, but you can sort of see the heat signature of, of houses in a neighborhood. Yeah, mm -hmm. To me, that cuts in two directions. It, for, for people focused on privacy, it could say, oh my God, you know, someone knows something about me. Uh, that's the, the downside. The upside is, again, if, if there's a positive sharing of, wow, you know, my house used to be really red and orange. And now it's cooler. Uh, you know, sharing that insight feels like it's a could be a really exciting thing to do on Facebook or uh, um, another platform. So how how does that feel to you? Not just the individual response to 
the newsletter or the like, but to um, community response. Yeah. I like the principle a lot. I mean, you mentioned the research on social norms earlier. We know social norms are a huge driver, even if people don't realize it. That's some of the really interesting insight there. If you ask people if other people are doing it, would you do this as well? People say, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not a sheep. I don't follow what other people do. And when you actually test it in field research, it seems to be the strongest driver over and above information, over and above economic incentives, all those things. So I think as a principle, social norms are hugely important. And wherever people get together and say, you know, I'm concerned about this, um, what do you think? It, it, has, it can have this multiplier effect and that's how social change happens. Um, I do like the my heat approach a lot. Um, I wasn't directly involved, but we discussed this as one option, doing something similar in a research project in Canada. And I know the engineers on the project were a little skeptical because they felt they had very little control over the images and what they would actually show. So for example, if someone's not at home, the heating, the radiator isn't on, it would show up as cold, but that doesn't mean that they're sustainable. So we have very little information about what actually happens here. Now, as a social scientist, I think I'm fairly happy to, to gloss over that and say, well, if we show it for a community, on average, we still have useful information from it. And I, I agree that social norms element is important. And we've seen other examples, for example, solar panel mm. um, spread where it's important if your neighbors have them. Yeah, and I see uh, and, this uh, again, myheat.ca, the Canadian group does have a solar, showing my solar essentially, I guess, as um, part of what they do, which is, again, it seems to me this is pretty, certainly an exciting arena to explore and learn out, learn more about I'm going to hopefully be in touch with the folks doing that. Um, yeah. It just seems, oh, I see it's part, it's powered by Google Project Sunroof. So they kind of know where the solar um, um, uh, roofs are. So that, yeah, that, that says a lot too about, um, you know, there's the conveying negative information. Oh, oh my God, my house is leaking energy. Why am I wasting so much? And then there's the positive wow, we've changed to solar. And both of those frontiers seem important to experiment with. Yeah, and also seeing, I mean, I think this approach is about the potential. So you visualize the heat you could gain from your roof. Mm. There's also other research that's showing when people put solar panels on their roof, it spreads through the neighborhood. Although we did this on our house in England, and I always hope to see this. It's very, It was a very visible position at the end of a dead-end road. And I was always hoping that the neighbors would do something, copy it, but it never happened in 10 years. So my own yeah. anecdotal <laughs> observation was it didn't work in that neighborhood particularly. Yeah. There are some practical uses of infrared imagery now that have really changed things um, in the context of knowing where, uh, for example, methane, which is a greenhouse gas, it's also natural gas, is where it's leaking. It, it's opaque to heat so that in infrared cameras, the same ones used here, can show vividly what's invisible to the eye. When you see a, a storage tank for oil by the roadside in Colorado, it just looks like a blue sky day. And then yeah. these the, these cameras have revealed uh, the leakage. And that that's definitely prompting more concern about something just by making it visible. Um, and there, too, it's more concrete. Mm -hmm. actionable policy. It's different than stimulating individual behavior. 
Yeah, that's a good point. You can talk to the industries directly. I've always wondered, I mean, you, you're saying about methane and other applications. I've always wondered why no one, or maybe has someone has done this now, has applied this to cooling. I mean, we, we just said it's a hot summer. Hmm. The same applies to air conditioning. If you've got a badly insulated home, you should be able to also visualize it. But then I'm not the engineer. Maybe there are reasons why. Oh, no. Well, that's, um, I think, that certainly feels like you're, you're onto something there, too. Uh, and even there's a guy I just had. Oh, gosh, I don't know if I can find the images. I might have to plug them in later. Um, a researcher in um, the Pacific Northwest, um, Vivek Shandas is doing urban planning, mapping for a hotter future, showing how you can kind of map forward and say, if there's more trees or less pervious, uh, you know, darker services here, this is what the temperature is likely to be, the difference, difference is likely to be. Oh, wow. So it's using it in a, in a forward-looking context, uh, saying our city doesn't need to be in the situation it was in three weeks ago when Portland was um, completely devastated by that um, heat wave. So, so that, in terms of planning, well, you're talking about urban futures in, in your work too. Uh, at that scale, what excites you in terms of, you, you know, literally helping communities envision and then pursue, in this case, a cooler city or a cleaner, uh, low energy city? Mm -hmm. What are we not thinking about there yet? Or what's what are some cool, um, exciting possibilities you think about? I'm not sure I'm innovative enough to say what we're not thinking about yet, but there are two things that I really like and I think are really exciting. I think there's lots more we could do with scenarios. So we're showing people what the future will look like. And I've got a fantastic colleague called Stephen Shepard at UBC who's taken climate change data um, and he's a landscape architect by training. So he's produced visuals that show people what their familiar environment looks like under different climate change scenarios. So looking at the, the hills behind Vancouver, what does the snow cover look like? Mm. And it's got that immediate impact on people. Oh, my God, I can't go skiing anymore. The kids can't go skiing after school. And I think we could do a lot more with that sort of human scale, human sized communication. And there's two yeah. things in there, particularly the one is the data. He uses sort of the best data available. So it's incredibly, incredibly credible. Um, it's, you know, even the scientists say, okay, I understand the assumptions you're making. This is really good. And the other thing is that he implements it at a human scale. So he brings people together in communities or in small groups and they can discuss it. And I think that's how change also happens because when we tried some projects before, um, funders often said, oh, but we want the really big scale. So you have to come up with a standardized approach where we give people information or we give people a visual. And I think that's not quite what works. I think what works is when you get people discussing the things they see. They right. exchange, they go, I'm worried about this. What do you think? What does it mean to you to really work on that meaning level? So in other words, uh, and this is something I think about all the time, and it's why I, I left full-time journalism. The um, the conversation, shaping the conversations or enabling the conversations with the right mix of expertise and community in a way that fosters trust and sustained engagement 
is as important as the visual, perhaps. I, I wouldn't say as important as, but it seems like the elements, the tools and the methods are equally important. Does that, does that come out pretty I would totally agree with that. I started from a more basic research, sort of clean research angle where I thought the visual is all we need. And I don't think that's true. I think we really need to think about the whole process and yeah, what does it mean to people for their social context? They need that comparison. What do others think? And I think I think that's the way forward. Yeah. So designing those interactions. Uh, this came out in a meeting we had at Columbia University two years ago on what's called managed retreat. It's the mm -hmm. concept that, along with adaptation, there's parts of the world uh, or parts of individual regions, whether through sea level rise or extreme conditions or flood risk uh, won't be habitable but how do you foster community understanding when our politics is all about uh, the status mostly about the status quo mostly about rebuilding not re meaning bringing back building back is not what we're climate requires building forward hmm. but we always in our heads want to build back and um the examples that were most exciting involve again this exact thing there's a group called the something rather consensus institute they they work in communities over time to foster the conversation and that interactivity in a way that can get the community comfortable with changing its zoning or its building codes or like the question that always comes up in my head again is scale it almost feels like there's a new profession required these kind of intermediaries uh, Mediators. We have mediators for divorce, for business disputes in, in law, but I'm not sure we have the social mediators yet out there. Is that something that comes up in your thinking off and on? It's an interesting question. I'm sort of thinking there are enough people who are concerned and who are interested, who, who want to make a difference and enough social structures that we could get involved. I'm not sure we need to build something completely new. I think perhaps it's enough to tap into the existing structures. What I was going to add as well is, I mean, I think it's all about connecting at what we all value because the trouble with some environmental topics is that they are so polarized and right. you almost don't want to start discussing them because it's a political issue and so on. And I think if we just strip it back to, we want our families to be safe. We want our children to have a future. We want to live comfortably. How do we achieve this? And really go back to those basic values rather than getting involved at that higher abstract level where we know people have big arguments and we all disappear into our own social media niche. I think that's also key. And I think what the visuals can do and what scenarios can do is let us have that conversation. At least that's my hope. That's great work uh, that you're doing. And I, I'd love to, you know, keep keep tracking it and facilitating where I can. Uh, again, I'm just a just a journalist. <laughs> uh, and but at the same time, uh, you, you know, I, I do try to cross these um, disciplinary and practitioner boundaries. There, there are ideas that emerge in other arenas that can really bear fruit if, if there's enough crosstalk. And sometimes there isn't. There, there are people working on the same questions, as I said, whether it's wildlife conservation or disaster risk mm -hmm. reduction, climate and energy awareness. Um, and, and the one thing that also has come up 
in my reporting is there's an incredibly, uh, I, I, I think it's fair to say we're deeply underinvested in the research and, and the demonstration of, on this stuff compared to climate change science and, and uh, energy science, that, hmm. that the, the behavioral component is vital. As I said, this emerged way late for me. I was writing all these, you know, stories about climate change. This is my 1988 story. And I thought, okay, just do that. And if you're not aware of the reception and then response to information, I could keep writing those stories for the rest of my life, which, you know, and not make a difference. I hope that one thing that people take away from this conversation is that there are really important frontiers here, but they, the, the work needs to be supported. The, it's the social science around climate adaptation, energy transition is, is as important to me as knowing better what sea ice is going to do in the Arctic going forward. That's my mm -hmm. assertion. I don't know if that re resonates. I, obviously, you could. I, I could just say from you, it would just be self-interest. But I don't. I think it's deeper than self-interest to say that this is feels like a, a gap. It's a difficult discussion to have. I mean, I think I've been quite lucky, and I I keep meeting people who are interested in social science and behavioral science, and they seem to realize the value. They sort of say to me, you know, we've shown this. We we've shown that climate is changing in, in various levels of depth and so on. And what we really need is to translate this into action. So there mm -hmm. is quite a drive now, I think, that says, okay, we need to work together. There are also other scientists who still want to measure the next decimal point and just do the excellent science, understand exactly what's happening. But I feel the, the camps are shifting. So there's more and more people now who say, we know enough. We need to really think about what to do now. We need to feed it into policy. We need to feed it into communities. And that's the focus. And I think it's true. There's no doubt that social research is cheaper. I don't want to use the word cheap. Yeah. More affordable than climate science. That's just a truism. Right. Um, but yeah, I think, I hope we're going beyond the projects where you've just got a social scientist tagged on. So they follow whatever the climate scientists are doing, because that's not really the, the thing that helps us achieve the big transition we need to. I am happily in total accord with you. Um, it was really fun to go to the Arctic three times. It was fun to, you know, I say that as a journalist, it was exciting to be on the sea ice at the North Pole with scientists trying to as you were saying, get a very a more detailed view of what the Arctic Ocean will do uh, as we heat the planet. Um, the basics of that, though, are so fundamentally understood that the, without thinking about how human beings change and don't change, we're really going to be behind the curve of perpetually going forward. And at least knowing, knowing what those hurdles are and knowing what's known about how to work with them they're not going to go away anytime soon. The human, the human mind is pretty stuck in its anatomy, and social structures are basically a function of how we, um, you know, our politics is framed around our, our reflexes to some extent. So, I just hope that there's more work done on, on the arena that you're in. Yeah, and the other thing, maybe that's also important. Many people have said this, but the answer isn't just individual behavior. 
I mean, that's sort of a straw man that sometimes gets set up to say, oh, you right. put the responsibility back to the people. That can't be the whole story. Yeah. Everyone I know has agreed on that now. We need to work with the structures. We need to work with industry, with governments, and really sort of all move in the same direction, and then it's going to work. And I think individual behavior is part of that for sure, but it can't do all of it. For sure. Uh, and then ultimately, of course, I think personally, I think the connectivity of social media, once it settles down a little bit, I think this whole system we're immersed in is still too new. And that's how it's been exploited. And, and you know, maladaption happens before order. I, I wouldn't say it's ever going to be orderly, but but I'm, I'm still hopeful that even with all the misuse of social media and, and the, the, the way it, it um, divides us and confuses us and actively is used to do those things, the potential for sharing those good stories, you know, hey, my home is cooler now. That's really great. Feels like we're still just at the beginning stages. So I, I hope that that part of this uh, and that can build the politics, you know, the politics yeah. system change to some extent is a function of community uh, sentiment, I assume. Uh, you're, you probably know deep, more deeply the history of how that all fits together, but. Yeah, I'm not a media expert. I mean, when I think about me, social media in particular as, as a lay person, essentially, sometimes it really scares me, the, the speed at which it operates and the, the mm. speed at which you can go the wrong direction and you've got stories that get shared that are totally unconnected, disconnected. Um, but I, I agree, there's also a huge opportunity. So I don't quite know how we get there, but it's it's so fast. It can also transition in a good way really fast. I believe that. I want to believe that. Right. I do too. And sometimes we do have to go on faith, even though you know I'm a science writer and you're a scientist. There, there are arenas where you do have to just sort of, um, you know that you don't know, and therefore, but you still have to act. And that leads yeah. to um, doing things based on basic principle. Yeah, actually, it is a very good point. I don't know if you know, but my other research area is plastic and microplastics. And of course, that's also been huge. One of the discussions we've just had recently is what do we do if there's no evidence or uncertain evidence and people are already really concerned about it, which is, for example, the case of microplastics in Europe. And the scientists, the natural scientists are hugely interested in this. The policymakers are also hugely interested because it's a sort of whatever they do, they get criticized. They go, well, this evidence isn't there yet. Why are you proposing policy? Or people say, well, we should use the precautionary principles or you should be doing something. And I'm right in the middle of this because we did a big policy report um, a couple of years ago. And I, I mean, as a journalist, I'd be interested in your view on this. How do you report on absence of evidence or uncertain evidence. I don't know, maybe this is a different I, conversation. I, I, but. Oh no, well, we, maybe I'll compartmentalize this, uh, but yeah, to me, one of the, f I wouldn't call it a failure of journalism, but a fundamental limitation of journalism, at least as we know it now, is conveying what we know we don't know. Most <laughs> headlines are about things we know. Uh, a classic case right now is unfolding with the um, condominium that collapsed in Florida. Mm -hmm. And I've done many of these kinds of reporting efforts after a terrible thing has happened where the media dive in right away. And they interview a lot of experts on engineers and, and 
and say, well, it could have been this. And like they were saying, it could be climate change. The CLC headline, climate change, possible role in condo collapse through sea level rise. And then the next headline just a few days ago was pool design, the pool area design could have contributed to the collapse of building. And, and I've done, again, too many of these kind of stories, sadly, to uh, recount. Um, after 9-11, some aspects of it, after the Flight 800, this 747 that blew up going from New York to Paris, uh, we all knew it was a bomb. It turned out it wasn't a bomb. And it turned out it was some very complex failure in multiple systems that will never be firmly established. But we, we don't the media jumped to these conclusions. They jumped to the headline. Um, we, as with policy, we have a hard time conveying uh, the reason to act is the things we don't know. Uh, climate change has surprises in it. Uh, and but you, you, an editor is not going to tell you to put that in the lead of a story, you know. Oh, well, you, you know, oh, so this is a risk management where where is your headline in, in a risk management approach to climate change, meaning precautionary principle, or uh, it, it doesn't give you the headline. And so that's a fundamental problem. Uh, and again, the media kind of like politics is shaped by people. You know, we, we serve our readers and more than uh, teach them. And that's another kind of fundamental uh, challenge for journalism right now. Which leads me to the engagement component that can be in journalism. It is sometimes here and there, but but still not really. To say, you know what, we don't know what brought that building down yet. Here's a here's some plausibilities. Uh, typically, when we the media cover a disaster like this, there's lots of assertions. There'll be a lawyer who will give us a tip on something that is motivated by some potential litigation, and we'll we'll put that in the headline. <laughs> So we don't tell the story of how we think about stories to the public enough. And so I, I think it's a challenge. I think uh, there are ways forward. Yeah, because it's the complexity that gets lost. I sometimes have the feeling and it is a real challenge because you can't put complexity into a headline easily. So no, I don't no. know how we're going to deal with this because my feeling is things are getting more and more complex and somehow that needs to be reflected and we need to make people think if you say the engagement part, yeah, I, I don't know the answer. I was just wondering. Well, and that when you again, all last year during the pandemic, we worked um, several times. I did um, webcasts on what's called compound risk, where you have a pandemic and then you have the hurricane season, and then people yeah. have to evacuate and they go to an evacuation center. And how does that happen in a pandemic? So if people aren't thinking actively about these dimensions. Uh, trouble can uh, surge uh, again. So this complexity is a fundamental part of where we're at and where we're going. Uh, even tr trade, think about what happened when that ship got stuck in the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. It was all kinds of, uh, I mean, in the Suez Canal. Um, so reporting on systems and then finding action points still that can, th there are stories there. You can write stories about ways to make systems more resilient. You can write stories about our supply chains are too stretched and and the efficiency that prompted so much economic flourishing is mm -hmm. 
a, a limit when you come to an unexpected disruption. So efficiency isn't always your friend, actually. And that finding that balance is hard. But those are all really hard stories. And they're hard policy and they're hard behavioral science too. Yeah. You have a lot of work to do you. I think so. And I think that the other thing is that they're not one-off stories or approaches. They need sort of continued engagement and thinking about. And I think that's also exactly. the difference that we need people to think about this and be able to update their knowledge as well. Because that's one of the frustrating things I've seen it in various domains, including health. You know, last week you told me it's bad to eat this. This week you say it's fine. And how do people cope with that? The complexity there in terms of messages is, is also enormous. Yeah. And there, 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 there are people who have wonderful insights there. Jeff Schlegelmelsch, who runs the National Center for Disaster Policy at Columbia, is a longtime practitioner in disaster risk arena policy. And he wonderfully articulated um, how to develop your own filter. Sort of, you have to know that you have, that we, even policymakers, have a tendency to want more information when bad things are happening. Mm -hmm. But he said you have to sort of, every hour or two, remind yourself, do I need this information? Is this useful to me? Is it going to tweak some aspect of my behavior or of my choices? valuably or is it just more too much information and, and that i i'm trying to actually emulate that in what i write by not writing all the time you know social media we're it's different it's kind of but even there you know there's a guy named michael tobis who worked on some climate related technology who had a blog and he uh, had a rule for his uh, comment section that was um only post if it's better than silence <laughs> <laughs> and you know so those little practices i think can help us stay sane even amid change mm. but that's the, a really sorry one last thing we could almost distinct from these issues we could talk about is the end of stationarity this is this there was a hydrologist who wrote a paper in 2005 saying that hydrologists in working on urban flooding or whatever they were stuck in presuming stationarity, that the system is not changing. Of course, climate change and urban growth have changed powerfully how floods happen. And so mm -hmm. the stationarity is gone, that every, everything we're doing is uh, not just a shifting baseline of perception, but a sh shifting baseline of how the world works. And that, that adds uh, urgency to what you were just describing earlier, mm -hmm. finding ways to advise policymakers uh, when not just knowledge of systems, but the systems themselves are, are changing is really uh, a yeah. novel yeah. concept right now in many arenas. Yeah, I, I know nothing about the station narrative, but interestingly, we've, we've started talking to a hydrologist team here who are also saying it's not enough to know about the water. What we actually need to know is about the interactions with people. So there's this new field called socio-hydrology hmm. that we're trying to work on together to understand how people adapt and where they move and what happens next, what happens after an extreme event, what happens after long-term changes such as climate change. And I learned something last week because we talked to him about this and we were discussing the the, the scale of the research. So where should we focus? Communities, countries, or 
or even bigger. And he said, well, if you think about freshwater flooding, there's only a limited amount of water in the system and the whole country can't really flood at the same time, if I rephrase his words now properly. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I never really thought about that, the physical limitations on that particular system. But again, we talked about this openness towards social and behavioral sciences, and that's another example. I said, it's not mm. enough to, yeah. Here's a kind of, this looks like a manifesto kind of paper. I think uh, that's one of the summary papers they've written. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this, you know, I guess the uh, the reality here, if this leads us to integrating social and behavioral sciences more, dare I use the word concretely, <laughs> more <laughs> more dynamically, more meaningfully, uh, it, maybe it looks like this is starting to happen if this literature is is, is out there. That's exciting to me because um, there's also socio energy. Yeah. The, the social components of energy systems are critical to understand. If, and the pandemic is the ultimate example of a sociobiological system. You know, the virus is there, uh, but it's all kinds of levels of human behavior and decision making that uh, changed its um, danger level. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. A great example, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for uh, being part of this. And I, um, we should sustain this conversation i'd love to um here's for people who want to track your work you're on um on twitter and uh, which i'm still a fan of despite all the uh the 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 troubles there of late and in facebook as well um so uh thanks sabine for being on with me here today stay cool there in vienna and uh, let's stay in touch thanks very much for the invitation enjoyed the conversation Great. Well, that's fine. We, I'll, uh, you know, stop the recording. And um, if there's, um, had, I think you had some PowerPoint slides that showed some of the, one thing I might insert in the video is um, you had three different versions of the information that were provided to homeowners. I think